Lord, we look to the day when we will behold you. We can't do that fully right now. One day we'll be able to do that because we will be with you. You will reign over us fully, completely. Our hearts will be pure, forgiven, righteous through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are so grateful. We look for that day through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, yesterday, uh, 21 years ago, I fully believed in my heart that I would have a peacetime military career. 21 years ago today, however, there were four separate coordinated attacks that took the lives of nearly 3,000 people. And that forever blocked the notion of a peacetime career from my mind. The military would now be among the first-line guardians of the country. Members of our newest branch, the Space Force, are called guardians. Like Nehemiah having uh, the people build the wall nearest their homes, we all guard something. For those of us who lived those days, the memory is seared in our minds. Even this morning when I checked the news, which I do daily, uh, it was just hard to see the pictures. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Were the dominoes stacked but a little bit differently, Iraq and Afghanistan could have instead uh, been World War Three. In 1947, friends asked Einstein what new weapons might be employed in World War III at a dinner party. He shook his head and he said, I don't know what weapons will be used in World War III, but there isn't any doubt that World War IV will be fought with stones and spears. For several years, we've been hearing, if you watch the news closely, about the chances of World War III. The doomsday clock started by Einstein and others is 100 seconds from midnight, the closest it's ever been since its inception in 1947. Scientists state the tense relationship between the United States and China and also with Russia. War gamers, and I don't mean people who play video games, I mean actual war gamers, can only describe that future battlefield with a near-peer opponent as short and sharp. Said differently, it would be over before anyone got a good night's sleep. Speaking of, of that, 1985, there was a paper written, Soldier Performance in Continuous Operations. Now, some of you uh, here may have experienced uh, some of, of, of this, so you know what I'm what I'm talking about, but it was published in order to discuss the conditions 
in particular of that war, which would likely last only about two weeks if it was fully engaged. Uh, if it wasn't fully engaged, uh, God help us, it would last generations. Either way, God help us. But the parallel they found was in World War II with the airborne division that was dropped behind enemy lines before the Normandy invasion. These were elite troops. They were well-trained. But the fact is the, the body can only take just so uh, much. They barely averaged, it's estimated, about three to three and a half hours sleep per day. I say per day because there was no such thing as sleep. What they did was when they would sit down, they would sleep. When they would stand up and weren't moving, they would sleep. They slept when they could. From a contemporary observer, Ballard talked to them. As Ballard talked to them, they would fall headlong in mid-sentence. When the formation pulled away from an assembly area, Ballard saw men fall in their tracks and hit the ground with their eyes closed. Later, India Company was caught unawares by a German dive bombing and strafing attack. Overpressure from the exploding bombs affected all the personnel. However, Lieutenant Robert G. Burns found that he could not keep his men awake no matter how hard he tried, and most of the men were asleep within two minutes of the finish of the bombing. Burns was confused. It was really a difficult time uh, for him because he could not tell which were wounded, which were dying, and which were sleeping. Men stood guard, able to move forward on command, but unable to cognitively identify anything around them, friend or foe. They were there, and they were not there. Now, this is uh, difficult because uh, paragraph uh, 895, article uh, 95 of the UCMJ which reads this, misbehavior of a sentinel or lookout. Any sentinel or lookout who is found drunk or sleeping upon his post or leaves it before he is regularly relieved shall be punished if the offense is committed in time of war by death or such other punishment as a court-martial may direct. If the offense is committed at any other time by such punishment, other than death, as the court-martial may direct. And we think, what have we got to do with this, John? And I'm going to tell you, we have everything and more. We, according to the Bible, have a tremendous responsibility to carefully guard over the treasure that God has given to us. We see this in Second Timothy. Actually, we saw the same imagery in First Timothy in six. 20, when uh, he uses this imagery of this treasure that we've been given. And what if it were your sole responsibility to keep Fort Knox guarded without fences or walls? I mean, you'd soon be a frazzle, and uh, you'd be good to no one. Uh, we're too weak to go on indefinitely, and that's the case. In 2 Timothy 1, 14... Paul wrote, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Many of you have heard the 
term bivouac. What you may not know, what you may think of when you think of bivouac, if you're Boy Scout or Trail Life or if you were in the military or if you just like camping at all, you've heard this term. What you may not know is what that term means. It doesn't mean to sleep out under the stars without a tent or even with a tent. It doesn't mean to go camping. What it means is to keep guard over the army. It's by guard is what it means. And when you were guarding the army, you were out in it. You were in the elements. And in essence, Paul is saying that to us, that we are to guard over this treasure that God has given to us. The lesson, I'll tell you right now, the lesson is this. The Christian life, this aspect of guarding can only be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, we read, in fact, a paradox where we read, I'm living, but not I, but the Spirit of Christ. Whether we live, guard, or whatever it is that we do, we must understand what it means that we're living, we're empowered by some other being. We're empowered by another. In fact, that's the mystery of the Christian life. In Galatians 2.5, Paul wrote this. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mean, we received the Spirit of God in the first place through belief, through faith in Christ. And how we live is by continuing in that experience with that power. This is so important for us to understand because so many in the church come today and they say, yes, I was dead in sins and thank you, God, for saving me. But you know what? I got it now. I can, I can do this. I can please you. The answer is no, we cannot. We're told to guard the truth but it's only through the Spirit of God that we can do that. In some ways, we, we guard it uh, only by holding it tightly. But the truth is, sometimes we should guard it, I think, by letting it loose. Charles uh, Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said this about guarding the Scripture. Scripture is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion? Just turn it loose. It will defend itself. Why did, he, why did he say that? I believe he said that because uh, the phrase, by the Holy Spirit, is linked to the word guard. And that is that it is this indwelling and the employing of the Holy Spirit that we can guard this excellent deposit. Guard the truth by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't do this on our own, with our own effort. It's not merely the words of the book. It's not merely the words of the Bible that we have that make it powerful. It is, in fact, the Spirit of God illuminating it. It is, in fact, that which brings it to our heart, which pierces our soul. Yes, it's without error, but that's not the thing to be remarked over. 
what's to be remarked over is that it changes our hearts and our lives. You can hold both thoughts at the same time. It changes our behavior. It transforms us. And, you know, and I wanted Paul to go on, tell us a little bit more about this, but he doesn't. Without any notification at all, if you're in the text, he changes the subject. Okay, Paul. He mentioned that some folks are impacted by his immediate situation. So first, he speaks of these uh, people who, who really disappointed him. In 1 Timothy 1, he said that some had deserted him. Now here in, in 15, he says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Clearly, Paul didn't mean every single uh, person, but I, I think here we see the, the humanity of Paul. He was so distressed by this that he actually said everyone has deserted him. But in just a moment, he speaks of some dear friends who haven't, to include Timothy. I mean, we think of him as Superman, but he was, he was a man. And uh, these two people that he mentions... We don't know anything about them other than their names, but one would take from the, the way that Paul mentions this is that they had been friends. It was perhaps Paul that had even led them to the Lord. We don't know, but what we do know is it broke Paul's heart. We know that Paul was disappointed. Paul obviously thought they would have supported him, but they did not. Because we're humans living in a fallen world, uh, people, hey, listen, I mean, we disappoint ourselves sometimes. How is it that we demand that other people never disappoint us? It's part of living in a fallen world. What I find fascinating is that Paul simply stated the fact. It was as if he were saying, Timothy, you know them well enough. You need to keep the trial that I formed for you as a framework of what Paul is doing with Timothy. He's preparing him for the trial that he's going to face. And when I say trial, I don't mean a broken down car. I don't mean losing his job. I mean in front of Nero. I'm talking about the trial for his life. And he's saying to Timothy, they did not come to my defense. They will not come to yours. And we, it's fascinating to me that he only mentions it. He just states it as a fact. When we know that elsewhere in 2 Timothy, a little later, he reserves some very harsh words for Alexander the coppersmith, but we'll get to that later. And by contrast, there is one man uh, from Asia, at least, Onesiphorus, whom Paul describes as having found a way to guard the truth in his day. Paul wrote this, 16 and 17 and uh, 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Still, when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, Anesiphorus means bringer of help or bringer of profit, and that's, he lived, lived right up to his name. And he had an unenviable task. 
Number one, the Romans didn't post where prisoners uh, were held. What prison is he in? I don't know. Go find out. In other words, Onesiphorus, when he got to Rome, he had to dig, he had to search, he had to ask questions, he had to find out. And during that time, in that day, that was risky business. In other words, you need to understand that Onesiphorus, by doing this, was putting his own life at risk. This wasn't simply, hey, I'm going to go look up an old buddy and I'm going to look him up in the phone book. Not at all. This was something that was very risky business. But he looked and he found him. And he was not ashamed of his chains. He refreshed him. He probably brought him food. And he probably brought him some other kinds of refreshment, physical and uh, spiritual. He came with a confidence that God was still in charge in upholding things. He was fearless. He was faithful. He was cheerful. Ray Stedman used to say about the Christian life that this reminded him of Onesiphorus, completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. Now, in contrast to Phagellus and Hermogenes, Paul prayed for him. And by implication, he's asking Timothy to support his family. And, and then this one particular thing, I love this, the play on words. Onesiphorus, he sought and he found me. On that day, on that day, may he find grace. May he find mercy. On that day, people will disappoint us, but God never will. D.L. Moody once said, Trust in yourself and you are doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will leave you by death or other means. Trust in money and you may have it taken from you. Trust in your reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God and you will never be confounded in time or eternity. And so now Paul gives Timothy a strategy for how to live this empowered life. So how do I, how do I appropriate this grace of God in, in my life? He says here, and to, and, one, and to you then, my child, uh, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We'll stop there. When people disappoint you, the first thing you have to do is turn to the grace of God. That's the fundamental principle of helping anybody. And the grammar here is just absolutely fascinating because it's a passive command. That's kind of a strange thing. It's a passive imperative. You know, what is that? I think the best way to translate that would be continue to be strengthened by uh, the Spirit, uh, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This past week, I listened to a well-known speaker in trauma counseling, which is something that I dearly love and appreciate. She told how she was on a plane and how that when the, uh, the attendant gives the little spiel, right, and they do this, nobody, right, is watching. When was the last time you were on a plane? Okay, she was watching intently. I mean, she was focused on this person. And she got, you know, here's what happens when the cabin loses pressure. You know, the masks come down. You, you know, you, you, you put it on, you do this, and, and, and so forth. She even made eye contact. 
Now, um, she felt like she was the only one paying attention. And when the attendant was finished, though, the attendant went to her, singling her out and saying, what are you going to do in the event of the loss of cabin pressure? She was taken a little back. I mean, are you going to pick on me because I was paying attention? You know, so she was a little bit offended until she reflected for just a moment as she realized that she was not looking at what the stewardess was looking at. The stewardess was looking at her four young children because the stewardess knew that the mother is going to put the mask on the child first. No, do not do that, she's saying. What you need to do is give yourself the oxygen because only when you have oxygen will you be able to give oxygen to others. Listen, this is so important. You are the one who has to be alive before you can give life to others. You are the one who has to be able to have before you can give that out. And if you do not have the grace of Jesus Christ in your heart and your life, you cannot hope to pass it on. You can only pass on to others perhaps what you have learned, perhaps what you know. But I can tell you that head knowledge is of, it's not of no value, but it is of little value if it does not make that little trip between the head and the heart to where it changes your life and it changes your behavior. Only teaching doctrines to people, you will help them very little. Unless one can see that the truth has changed your heart and transformed you and allow you to speak from your experience of truth, then nothing has been done except for to help them win the next argument, which I don't believe an argument has ever gotten anyone into glory. Belief, faith, relationship does that. So what do we need? That which strengthens is grace. Paul wrote the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the, another paradox, and that is this, is that grace is not available to strong people. And we think we've got this. You know, when is it that we finally turn to God? It's when we've exhausted everything else. That's when we turn to God. And you know what? That's when God shows his grace because his grace is perfected in our weakness, not in our strength. It is our weakness, in fact, that we have to have an awareness of and just say, God, I can't get through this day without your grace. I can't do it godly anyway. I can check boxes and I can perform like, you know, an animal jumping through a hoop, but I cannot do this in a way that pleases you without your grace. And God's grace alone is strong enough for us to be able to handle living as children of light in a fallen world. Still, the only way that we can lay a hold of that is to acknowledge that that we're weak. It's something I recommend to you. In fact, the only time we see it, not the only time, but the time we see it clearest is when we are what I say 
uh, is being stranded on the sovereignty of God where you have nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to go, and then you can see him work in ways that you never anticipated or expected. And many who fail to understand this, they, they think they got this, they think they're okay with this, and the thing is, is they look good until the pressure comes on and Satan knows exactly how to put a very specific pressure on what our weak points are and who seem to be so strong and stand so tall, just drop in the face of pressure. And they may give great testimony about how they will follow Christ and stand for him, but they, they go down. This is part of that harm that was done in the church all those years ago that we have to be aware of today. Therefore, recognize your weakness. Accept God's promise to work in you and, and through you in that weakness. And then, and doing that, you can become a guardian of the truth. That's the first of two commands. The second one is this, to pass it on. Paul tells Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I'm going to say something that may sound a little unusual at first, and that is this. The Bible does not speak of apostolic succession. However, it does speak of apostolic tradition. While succession is apostolic authority and ministry passed from person to person, apostolic transmission, tradition, is the orderly transmission of the apostolic faith and doctrine handed down from the apostles to us, person to person. The truth is, each one of us who know Jesus Christ can trace our faith if you had all the... I do a lot of genealogies. When you get back to... Uh, you get back in the 16, late 1600s, you just, you just lose it, okay? You can get pretty good up to then, and maybe we're pretty good. Maybe you know the person who led you to Christ, and maybe who led them to Christ. But the truth is, is that goes all the way back to the apostles. And that means it goes back to Jesus Christ himself which is an amazing thought. Now, I don't say that because we take any kind of pride in that or that we take any kind of privilege in that or power in that. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is it's an amazing understanding of how Paul is telling us the gospel, the truth of the word of God is to be handed, entrusted from person to person. Paul was clear that Timothy was his son in the faith. Do you think that Timothy had no sons in the faith or daughters? Do you yourself not have sons or daughters in the faith? I hope that you do. I trust you do. And did not Paul tell Timothy to entrust this, to pass this on? Yes. So in the church... How are we to do this? How do, we, how do we manage this? What does this mean in this case here, First Colony Bible Chapel? 
And this question takes us back to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, about elders. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he deserves a noble, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So what we see here is the Apostle Paul from one book to the next book saying at a, essentially at a formal level, how is this trust transmitted? I'm telling you it's transmitted at a personal level with each one of you. But in the church, there is a special place in terms of the guarding the purity of the apostolic tradition that's been passed on. And as the Lord raises men in the congregation, existing elders are constantly observing and, and evaluating. Now, in the assemblies, the process is one of recognition. It is not one of appointment. Therefore, any particular elder publicly recognized as such should not surprise anyone in the congregation because they had already been doing the work of an elder for an extended period of time. It's no surprise. Some of you here in the congregation have been pondering whether or not this is something that you should do. The first thing that comes to my thought is, because this is out of my own background, what was I, what was I always thinking? The, the primary thought that I had was, well, look at the people who occupy the position. Elder is, is not just a clever term. They're old. Now, what you have is that creates a false dichotomy between what it means to be an elder. Let me say it this way. How old do you have to be to be an elder in a Jewish synagogue? Shout it out. 30. How old? Hey, let's, let's, just, let's, go wider, let's go wider than this to what our nation has determined a person of this age has the capabilities and the intellect and the competency in order to run the nation. How old do they have to be? 35. Why do I say that? No, men, 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 men. If this is something that you have in your heart, don't even look at age as being a hindrance. It is not. And this tradition is passed on from person to person. And while this is especially true for 
the leadership in the church. There is no doubt about that. It is also true for each one of you. As you entrust the gospel, as a parent entrusts the gospel to their children, as a friend entrusts the gospel to a friend, we need to be careful to guard this. Because whether we know it or not, we are all guardians in a state of war. Satan has been continuously at war for millennia, and he has been at war with you. You. Look in the mirror with you for your entire life. And he wants his battle to be short and sharp. Listen, he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy me. He is not happy with just a mere sidelining. Here, let's just put him on the bench. No. If you, if you think that's all he's after, you do not understand how malevolent he is. He wants to crush you. And it is only by the grace of God that we breathe the next day. All of us live by the power of the Holy Spirit who trusts in Christ. It is by him that we stand. And he has charged us through the empowerment of that spirit, of his spirit, to guard the most precious and holy truths that are not simply written in the word of God, but that are experienced in a transformative way in our hearts and lives. We are only one generation away from apostasy, ever. The church's work, this church's work can fall apart in a generation if we do not faithfully pass it on. And there needs to be those who are willing and able and stand and say, I am willing to take this, entrust it to me. Parents to children's children, elders to those younger, leaders to those who would follow, faithful men and women who can teach others also. That is how we may stand in the hour of attack. Father, we can't move beyond today without another reflection of 9-11, the movements there and before cost many, many lives. Some of us touched very personally by those losses. Lord, We pray for the families and the friends of those who suffered that day and suffer to this day. Father, also we want to be mindful of the fact that we too are at war. 
Sometimes we don't realize it. Sometimes we feel ill-prepared for it. And those are actually two good places to be because it's those times when we turn to you for grace through Jesus Christ to strengthen us to do that which we have been called to do, to guard that which you've entrusted to us. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace towards us through Christ our Lord. Amen.